Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Data Ripples on Tap. We are your hosts, Kieran Healy and Randy Pitcher. As always, if you would like to keep up with everything we do on and off the podcast, please subscribe and find us at hashmapinc.com. Today, we are taking a look at Snowflake, one of the hottest and most widely used cloud data warehouses. We want to discuss some of the reasons we find it to be an essential part of a modern data stack. But before that, Randy, what are you drinking today? I am really, really glad you asked. Uh, I am having a Prairie Artisan Ales uh, Vanilla Noir Imperial Stout. Uh, Prairie Artisan Ales is an OKC local company that I have been admiring since my Houston days because their bottles are really works of art. And the beer is this Vanilla Noir, like I said, the Imperial Stout. It's aged in an oak whiskey barrel with vanilla beans. And vanilla is one of my favorite flavors. And it is strong, man. It's almost 14% uh, alcohol by volume. And it is a dark, thick, like inky black. Um, but the 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 beer isn't actually all that thick. It's kind of weird. It's like really drinkable, even though it's a strong, dark uh, black beer. Um, I would say it's fantastic. The vanilla has a, almost an alcoholic uh, quality. There's a burn from the whiskey barrels. And I don't know, it, it smells just really, really inviting. Uh, what are you drinking? So I'm drinking today uh, the Mini Boss, which is a very popular beer from Eureka Heights. Shout out to them again for keeping me supplied throughout this apocalypse. Um, I would definitely say it's uh, a more hoppy style beer. It's mm. lighter. It you could, but you can always definitely taste the pure amount of hops. <laughs> it's basically like a hop explosion for your mouth, is what I would kind of describe it as. So if you like that, you'll like this beer. If you don't, you'll hate this beer. Okay, <laughs> basically. But um, I definitely love this beer. So you're kind of like you kind of like hops. I do. Well, I do like dark beer too. I actually, I'm a I'm very partial to Guinness, and I do like my coffee porters. And um, yeah, more of my dark. Yeah, just dark some coffee porters. Really, I'm really into coffee porters, man. So this one reminds me a lot of like some of the other coffee beers I've had, but the, the vanilla has. Alcohol, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right word. It's almost like ethanol kind of like effervescentness to it. So when I expect it to get darker after I drink it with the coffee, it actually lifts at the end instead with the with the vanilla. So I think you would really like this. Okay, cool. I'll have to check it out. I'm, I'm assuming I could probably pick that up at like my local HEB. Cause oh, yeah. HEB for sure has this. I've seen them there. It'll be okay. the prettiest bottle on the shelf. All right. I'll go check out the prettiest bottle on the shelf. And so should you, listeners. Uh, but... But the main the main event that we're trying to get into today is uh, data warehouses. Yeah. And uh, more specifically, Snowflake. But I think first we should take a wide lens approach of this and discuss data warehouses, why they exist, and kind yeah. of this architectural battle that we have to get into of data warehouses versus data lake. Yeah, so, so let's start maybe higher level. Like, what is a data warehouse? What do we mean when we say that? And I think... Um, Everyone has their own kind of definition, and we're not here to say your definition is wrong at all. Really, I think more what I would like to say is that data warehouse is a made-up term that kind of means nothing. But in general, we're talking about the place that we put most of our data, largely for our analytics workloads, that we run SQL against. So when people are talking about data warehouse versus data lake, we're talking about the central place that we put our data, largely for analytics workloads, that we can run SQL against. Uh, 
And that can be, if you're a smaller company, you don't have a ton of data and you're working off of a, a single MySQL instance, um, that can be your data warehouse. That's absolutely fine. Uh, larger companies, that tends not to be the case. You have what we would call operational stores where you know your applications are hitting against. Fast read writes happen there. Transactions happen there. And then you have your centralized location where you do your daily aggregates, right? Where you power your dashboards from, where you do machine learning from. So this kind of central heartbeat of the modern, what we call the, the data stack, uh, is a data warehouse separate from a data lake in that you can run SQL against the data warehouse. That's kind of my internal definition. Data lake, yes, there are parts you can run SQL against, but other parts, like if you're storing um, PDFs or like video files, you would store those in a data lake, but you don't necessarily run SQL against them. So that's kind of my term. I don't know, Karen, do you, you have a similar uh, definition against you know data warehouse versus data lake? Yeah, sure. So if I would describe a data lake, and I guess my biggest thing is that in my time as a data engineer, all I've seen people do from a business perspective is say, throw everything in the data lake, we'll figure it out when it gets there. And mm -hmm. a lot of these times when you get into data lake architecture, it starts to become what I would like to call data soup, or more commonly referred to as a data swamp, right? So mm -hmm. either you need machine learning to be able to clean data that's in the data lake, like a self-cleaning metric analysis of what's going in, what stuff needs to be quarantined, or you need someone constantly monitoring the data lake, which is expensive and it takes a lot of time. And also it just is highly inefficient for uh, any sort of an analytics or anything like that. Whereas a data warehouse tends to be more BI friendly. It tends to be more um, centered around business intelligence and uh, delivering insights and generating more useful data sets for data scientists that they can use to okay. do regression analysis or something like that. So I think we've kind of laid out that data warehouse and data lake, they're kind of arbitrary terms. They have some general things that most people mean when they say data warehouse or data lake, but there is not to my knowledge, a standard Webster's dictionary definition of a data warehouse. So let's not get too hung up on that. Um, but there are some common things we see. Uh, but what we didn't mention is whether it was cloud or on-prem. So um, you can have a cloud data warehouse, you can have an on-premise data warehouse. I think most of the history of data warehousing has been on-premise as most things have been. Um, a lot of the Hadoop world that you know, I, I got into this industry through was all on-prem and Hive was our data warehouse. Really, it's just a SQL layer on top of a Hadoop data lake. Um, and it wasn't particularly good for BI, though everyone kind of wanted to make it that way, at least in enterprise. Uh, and then you have your cloud offerings. So when we talk about cloud data warehouses, there are others, but there's really kind of four main ones um, at scale. Um, there's one each for each of the cloud vendors. So GCP has BigQuery, uh, Amazon has Redshift, um, Azure, they, it's kind of different. They used to have um, SQL Data Warehouse and now they have Synapse, which I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around. I've used Synapse. I still don't like have a good conceptual understanding of it. It's really hard to like grok, um, like understand. And yeah, there's, so, so I'm very familiar with Azure Data Warehouse, but Azure Synapse is something that I also haven't yet wrapped my head around. I think just because it's so new, right? Yeah, I mean, partly that. I mean, a lot of these things are new, right? Like BigQuery was new to me and I understood it pretty quickly because it's well documented and it's like easily architected. I think Synapse, uh, I don't know, maybe has a technical communication challenge <laughs> or, or okay. maybe offsetting. Anyway, so the fourth one is Snowflake and that's what we want to talk about. Um, 
today. And I think the advent of Snowflake is brought on because of cheap storage and instant compute. Like those are things that have changed in the last five, 10 years. Um, storage has gotten incredibly cheap on the cloud and compute can scale up and down almost instantaneously. So that's where, where Snowflake hits. Um, Kieran, do you want to mention maybe why we're starting with Snowflake? Uh, I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of mention uh, a lot of the use cases that we have at HashMap, probably, I would argue 80, 85%. We are very familiar with Snowflake due to how much we use it, utilize it in our day-to-day lives, whether that's yep. with clients. It's probably one of our primary business drivers here at HashMap. Yep. And it's kind of the flavor of the month data warehouse currently. Uh, that's not to say that there won't be a new one, there won't be a new kid on the block or something like that. But currently right now, this is the one that uh, seems to be getting the most traction. And it's the one that we have the most experience with. This series that we're doing right here, the uh, full warehouse uh, series, we're going to be actually doing a bunch of different um, looks into those those other cloud data warehouses that Randy mentioned earlier, uh, Synapse, Redshift, and, GC, and the uh, Google Cloud data warehouse, BigQuery, and then uh, yeah, we'll be moving along through those as well as today's topic, which is Snowflake, which brings me to my next question, Randy. I guess we have to ask this question so that we get everybody up to speed. What is Snowflake? Yeah, so uh, Snowflake, maybe now's a good time to you know double down on Karen's disclaimer. Um, HashMap, we do work with Snowflake quite a lot. Uh, while we're a vendor-neutral consulting company, our consultants are vendor-neutral uh, I'm definitely not unbiased. I'm very biased in favor of Snowflake. I've used it. I've used other tools as well. And um, it just works. And that's kind of the simple part. It lets you move fast. Um, there are there are use cases absolutely where one of the other tools are better or a totally different non-warehouse solution is the way to go. But in the abstract for our clients, SQL first clients, new to the cloud, Snowflake is such a win. Um, and so what is Snowflake? Snowflake is a uh, a true SaaS cloud data warehouse. Um, by that, I mean, um, it's a software as a service built for the cloud. Uh, so it's not like some other service that's been kind of bastardized and adapted to run in the cloud. This is designed to run in the cloud with no downtime, with self-maintaining uh, components that you don't have to worry about. You don't have to worry about uh, manual scaling logic or failover or any of these kind of things that you have to worry about in like a hive world, right? The on-prem kind of um, alternative tool, the the legacy tool. Uh, it's multi-cloud, which is really important. So Snowflake, the way it works, it runs on top of Amazon, uh, AWS, uh, Azure, or GCP. So one of those three, it's actually built on top of. Um, something that's often confusing, people think like, okay, I'm on AWS, so Snowflake's going to run in my AWS account. That's not true. Um, you should still probably have your Snowflake be an AWS version of Snowflake, but it'll run on a totally separate AWS cloud that will interact with your own. Uh, so you actually don't end up doing any management outside of SQL-based interactions. That's a huge draw point for why people like Snowflake. Um, but I think the thing that's really a killer feature in it, and it's a thing that we struggle so often in a Hive world, which is very high throughput environment with poor latency performance, so BI sucked, or you might struggle with in a really, really good, like MySQL instance with good latency, uh, but it would struggle to hit like terabytes and terabytes of processing is that it's hard to get a tool that's good at both bi and high throughput but snowflake really manages to do that can you maybe explain a little more what i mean by that karen 
Uh, yeah, sure. So getting into, I, I think we're kind of delving more into Snowflake architecture at this point, right? Randy, we're trying to, we're getting into like why Snowflake is so good, I guess. Sure. Yeah, we absolutely. So like, what, what is it about Snowflake? When I say it's good at BI, it's got high throughput processing, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of does best of both worlds where before you had to make that choice. What is it about Snowflake that allows you to do that? So I would argue it starts with their architecture and specifically it's around their three, there are three layered architectures. Um, and that, and those layers are storage, compute, and cloud services. And I'm going to go over these one, each, each one, one by one, so that we get a firm understanding of why each layer is really good. So let's start with the storage or the database storage layer. So when data is actually loaded into Snowflake, Snowflake reorganizes that data into its internalized, optimized, and compressed columnar formats. And Snowflake can store that optimized data inside the in-cloud storage. And then Snowflake manages all aspects around how this data is stored. So there's no uh, repartitioning like you would have to do in Spark. The developer doesn't have to handle that, which is quite honestly one of my favorite features because I remember having to repartition files just to get uh, write, or read and write speeds up on typical blob architecture. And it, it allows a self-managed approach to these to database storage. Uh, the next layer that allows it to be so good is its compute or query processing layer. So when a query is executed or performed, uh, Snowflake spins up what's known as a virtual warehouse. And each virtual warehouse uh, essentially is a cluster with multiple com compute nodes uh, that allows Snowflake to run the, compute, the SQL queries that you and I would write every single day. And what's really critical about this is that the virtual warehouse is completely independent from the actual resources of the cluster itself. And it doesn't impact your performance, whether you're running uh, different queries. If different users are running different queries, you can spin up different virtual warehouses. And users don't have to compete for resources, which is super critical, especially when you're doing BI development, which is why when you said earlier, Randy, about BI, why is it good for BI, that's the reason why, is that you can spin up independent virtual warehouse layers for different users, and they can each independently run their own queries, and they don't have to compete for resources. So if you're from the on-prem world, right, and you're, you're kind of new to cloud data warehousing, um, you're probably used to thinking of, you know, your compute is something you procured, you bought at the beginning of the year, whenever you had budget, and you did some sizing exercise, right, to decide how many servers you have to put in your data center, uh, and you found out whatever that number was, and then you added some buffer, right? And you bought it up front, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions maybe. Um, compare that to this Snowflake cloud environment where we can scale our workloads up as we have the need for the workloads. I know many like Fortune 100 companies who get started with $30 a month. I mean, it's just incredibly cheap, low barrier to entry um, prices we're talking about. And then as your use drives forward, as you solidify around what's actually useful to do, instead of having spent the last two years, you know, writing plans, writing PowerPoints, um, focusing on the like the mechanisms of the warehouse, you start in day one focusing on solving a problem and you're not putting a ton of money up to do it. I, I think that is what's so powerful with the separate compute and storage. You're only paying for what you use and you don't have to tie yourself into a small world or a big world. You can just elastically scale up both that storage and that compute. So I want to I want to hit that point especially hard for folks who aren't used to this. I mean, once you get this concept, you start to expect it 
and lots of other environments. And when you start using another tool that doesn't separate storage and compute the same way, you start to get frustrated. Like, why, why do I have to buy this up front? Even the small things, like I've used services that if you run a query, that, that server has to stay on for an hour and you get charged for the full hour. And it that, I mean, that's still better than the previous world, but I get frustrated, like, just turn it back off. I think that's how um, the old Azure Data Warehouse model actually used to run. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's that's super critical. I really want to get to this last point on the architecture, what makes it so good. Um, and that would be the uh, the cloud services, the security layer and the um, the caching that you can do on Snowflake. Specifically, the security layer um, allows you to control roles and authentication from internally. And you can even, if you have certain uh, tie-ins with other services like Azure storage integration, things like that. Uh, and also the caching, which allows you, when a user runs a query recently, they can it can Snowflake can actually cache the results of the query, yeah. and then uh, you it'll call it back. So let's say a query takes thirty seconds the first time you run it, and you really need it for a snappy presentation, you can store it in the cache and get it back within three seconds. Because I want to hit on that. You, you said store it in yeah. the cache, um, which is correct. That's correct syntax, but that doesn't capture really the feeling. Um, sure. Snowflake's doing this automatically. So I run a query trying to get my rollup of monthly usage, like how many site visitors I've had to my website. And then you run that same query, maybe 12 hours later. As long as that data hasn't changed, which again, I don't have to manage whether the cache is valid or not. Snowflake will check. As long as that data hasn't changed and the query is word for word the same, you will get the same results back, even though I'm the one that run it. And when we talk about Snowflake's good at BI, why is it? I think they really thought about the BI UI experience from the ground up. They didn't build a, an MPP engine, a massively parallel processing engine. And then at the end of the day, been like, well, I guess people want to do BI. We should like, throw some garbage on top of this. From the ground up, they built that use case in for good latency performance alongside good scalable uh, throughput performance. And that's what makes it such a game changer. We're talking great BI performance, high scalability on demand with no upfront costs. And we're talking about a SQL only interaction. So I don't need to be a, a cloud expert. I don't need to be a cloud engineer that understands how IAM roles work or how S3 is gonna communicate with my specific cluster, right? I just go in there, I create data, I manage data, I use SQL the whole time. I don't need to use an API or a REST interface, something like that, it's just SQL. Um, so those things combined, I think, give Snowflake this perfect storm advantage. And it's why it's such a cult uh, favorite. People, I mean, you've experienced this as well. People, once they use Snowflake, especially if they've had to fight through the hard old way, they're fanatics. They love it. They don't want to use something else. And you can't say that about a lot of tools, that once you use it, you want to keep using it. Um, but I think that kind of, I'm trying to capture, like, why is Snowflake such a big deal? A lot of our listeners have probably heard Snowflake said they, they've heard about snowflake they maybe been curious about it these things together make it such a killer killer combo yeah i think that the, it definitely adds to the um the wow factor this cult following because i mean it took i was a non-believer yeah. let me just say that sure to uh when i first came on the scene um basically i had been very much heavily in the azure world and a little bit in gcp and a little bit in aws but not enough to say that I was fluent in it. So I hung out in ADW mostly, but had some experience with BigQuery and minimal experience with Redshift. But 
um, I was pretty used to the way that ADW ran things. And as soon as I got my hands on keyboard with Snowflake, it was like a different, totally different experience. I didn't have to manage uh, compute and the auto scale feature works properly, <laughs> which was amazing. And also the caching is unreal because as Randy said, you're allowed, it basically does most of the stuff for yourself. I would argue that it's one of the two only true SaaS cloud data warehouse solutions. Yeah, I think that's probably true. What's the other one? Uh, for me, I would argue that, from my point of view, I'd argue it's um, BigQuery. Why is that? Um, just from the simplicity of how BigQuery works, like, because BigQuery, even the security is managed from within the Google Cloud platform. So all of these managed services and the architecture is very similar from Snowflake to... Uh, or not the architecture, um, sorry, what's the word? The actual engine process, they both have workbooks, they both query each other in very similar ways. Um, you would say they just, that BigQuery and Snowflake query data in similar ways? Uh, not like syntactically, but essentially like you can run the engine, like what you run in the engine is very similar, I would say. What do you mean by that? Um, let me get into detail on that. So. When, when I query something in Snowflake through the workbook, it's very similar to the workbook-esque experience in the G, in inside the uh, BigQuery table. So it's not a big jump for me, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Whereas if you were using Azure Synapse or... Uh, I'm not sure about Redshift because I haven't used it that much, but I, it's it's not as simplified a UI as, I would, as those other tools, I would say. Okay, so... Okay, the Synapse has a more complex UI? Yes, that's what I would say. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, those, those are the big things that kind of make uh, Snowflake, to us, game changers, and it's why I think we've realigned a lot of our focus on enabling Snowflake and why a lot of our clients are excited to get on Snowflake and start solving problems and stop wrestling <laughs> with infrastructure. Um, anyway, uh, Kieran, how's that beer? That's pretty good, dude. Um, yeah, nothing to complain about. It's still, still as hoppy as ever, punching me in the face. But yeah. you know, I you, I mean, you must be was a masochist for that kind of thing because I get, I, I don't know. I feel like I have to have another beer before I could have a hops uh, heavy beer, and I'm a two beer limit kind of man. I'll take a nap after that. Yeah, I think I think it's just um, I got used to it. I guess mm -hmm. IPAs became a huge thing, and then it was just like, okay, I guess I'll just try this. Get used to okay. No, I, I feel like I, guess I, I did that with cold brew coffee. It was like, okay, I want this to be good, but it's gross. It's so good. yeah. So how's yours going, Randy? It's fantastic. It's really smooth. Um, but like I told you, 14 percent alcohol, and I think kind of out of the fridge, cold. It was. It had a bite to it, but now that it's gotten a little more to room temperature, um, it's mellowed out. I can get a lot more of that vanilla in there, some of that wood, oak, kind of like the – I feel like tannin is a word people say with beer. Wine. Is it wines? Oh, man. Okay, so let's forget the tannin. Um, okay. Whatever makes things taste almost caramelly or nutty, that kind of warmth, um, I feel like there's that, a lot of that in this beer. So I would recommend this. I'd get this again, even just for the bottle. It's gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. But hey, let's cool. um, let's dive back in and maybe taking a less technical approach. Let's talk about where should you place Snowflake kind of in your mental map? I think we all have sure. this mental map of the data ecosystem and where things 
sit and what they're good for and what they're not good for. So with the database, especially, um, people can try to make all different kinds of things work, but I want to hear from your perspective, what are things that work well in Snowflake? What kind of use cases and what are things that you should maybe consider a different tool for? So being on client with clients, uh, daily meeting with them and using Snowflake currently, uh, one of the biggest use cases I see is aggregation of data. Okay. Aggregates of time, basically like the data mark concept, you know, Okay. where you have data that comes in, you're trying to aggregate a view for a BI tool, and then you, you spit it out to that BI tool. So I'd say that's the number one use case for Snowflake at this time. Okay. And I think for my clients, that's probably true. And not that BI is a use case in and of itself. Um, but BI is the driver. Like, why would you use Snowflake? Well, because we have BI and we want it to run fast and we have tons of data. Uh, but the actual use cases I see, they're really varied because it's such a flexible tool. Um, I, oh, yeah, for sure. I, I'd say one that I see a lot is just around like sales and digital marketing. And I think that has to do with the cloud nature of both people's typical marketing data. You know, you're looking at Google Analytics, um, Facebook ads. Uh, Amazon has their ad uh, features as well. So they're already in the cloud. For, so for an enterprise company, it's not as big a deal to move that to another cloud infrastructure. And there's great tools like Fivetran that allow this to happen easily. But once it's up there, you also get really good beyond. And I found that the digital marketing teams, they're tech savvy, but they're not necessarily always data engineers. So what they want, they can write SQL and they know what they're looking for, but they just need to get the data in the same spot. Like how do I compare Facebook ads versus Google ads? I need to have it in one spot. So this um, sales attribution, digital marketing attribution, these are really good use cases that use like what you said, aggregates over time or location or product, the kind of slice and dice um, use case. Um, yeah, I would definitely argue that getting more into the specifics of in individual use cases, sales and digital marketing is a great use case for that because aggregates tend to be the bread and butter of those sales and digital marketing dashboards that people like to build. Yeah. Another one of those uh, kind styles of aggregate aggregation tools or more specifically use cases would be a uh, inventory management. So let's say that you're in a rush and every I know that at HEB recently they actually were out of steak all of all the meats at the at the counter were just gone it was like a barren wasteland like there was nothing on the shelf so I'm assuming they'd have some sort of uh, database where they hook up to their supply chain their supply chain database and say hey man we ran out of meats really fast this week we need to buff up our meat stock so and this would be one of those ways that you could use a data warehouse tool like Snowflake to build a aggregation engine that allows you to deliver some really intelligent uh, BI and make actions and say, okay, well, last week we ran out on a thousand stakes. We need to buff that up to a thousand two hundred to meet demand. That sort of thing. And another way would be, and that also identifies, can go a long way into identifying root cause analysis of marketing marketing or inventory trends, I would say. I, so, I, sorry. I would say that these are kind of like specific use cases on a more general pattern, which is what we call OLAP queries, online analytical processing, which those words don't really mean anything altogether, but we're talking about your like your your analysis cubes, your slice and dice style of queries when you're doing exploration or when you're doing KPI uh, monitoring and, and reporting, um, that typical classic reporting use case. Uh, they work really well with Snowflake. And 
not just the presentation, but also all the transformations that it takes to get to that point. Um, even across trillions and trillions of records, you can scale that very, very easily. Um, but what are maybe some things that Snowflake would struggle with, or maybe it's not the best tool for? Sure, yeah. Um, one of those use cases, I would argue, is real-time monitoring. Okay. So I would argue that it's not really fit for closed-loop automation, or what people like to refer to as submit altering or alerting. Uh, altering, either altering of the data, let's say, or alerting, where you're getting back um, sub-minute uh, issues, queries, values that say, hey, there's something wrong. Like with our real-time architecture uh, podcast that we had last week, we were talking about real-time alerting and things like that. This would be a situation that we would not recommend Snowflake because the um, you're trying to get data back in a quick way. And Snowflake's really great at doing those aggregations, but it's not really great at doing this, this sort of analysis, I would argue. And I want to I wanna qualify that. Um, it, you're not going to find the one tool that does all of it. I mean, the whole spectrum, uh, because those tools don't exist. You need to make different architectural decisions to optimize for that real time versus that scalability versus that low latency, right? Those are all things that, I mean, they compete with each other. So when we say Snowflake's not fit for real-time monitoring, we're talking about safety critical sub-minute, sub-second um, decision-making. That is not fit for purpose. You're going to want a streaming architecture. You're going to want some streaming consumers and some alert handlers. That needs to exist. But that works in parallel, in tandem with a Snowflake environment that does your other non-sub-minute analysis. So you have your your we always talk about the temperature and pressure gauge. You have your temperature gauge and you need to control some system that'll shut everything down if it exceeds a certain point. That is not a snowflake use case. But if you want to see how that temperature is impacting some other components of your infrastructure and you want to map that with your vendor who provided the gauge and you want to make sure that it stays within compliance and that dashboard needs to be updated every hour, that's a great snowflake use case. So it's, it's, the combination, we, we talk about this a lot, it's a combination of the quality and nature of your data as it comes in, but also the way you intend to use that data. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess one other, I'd like to ask you, Randy, about one other thing. We, I hear a lot in the industry about time series data. Yeah. And many questions that are asked to me are about around Snowflake and time series and saying, well, can, Snowflake is a time series database. And I feel like that's an incorrect statement one but it does do some some things time series like yeah. I guess. so I'd like, to, I'd like to clarify what what would you argue are the do's and don'ts of time series and snowflake let's get into this so snowflake is the first to say they are not a time series database it's actually um one of the best things about snowflake is they don't try to be things they're not they focus on what they're good at and the things they're good at they're very good at so it's nice and refreshing to have that modular focus um, compared to other platforms that might try to be everything to everyone. And they're just kind of trash it, you know, in the aggregate. So time series. Yes, as a blanket statement, Snowflake does not do time series. But let's talk about what you mean by time series, because people are talking about different things. When I hear a lot of our enterprise clients say, I have time series data, what they mean is they have data with timestamps. That's what they mean by time series. Um, when Snowflake says they're not a time series database, they mean they don't support very advanced time series specific rigorous analysis functions. So things that you're probably trying to do with your time data, if you're in the same position as many of our clients, 
Um, you're trying to do window functions over a week or over a month, really similar to like group buys. You just want to roll up over the month. How have my sales been? How does that compare to last month? So we have month, month over month analysis. You do year over year, um, rolling averages, um, year to date, month to date sums. So you can count how your sales goes up over the quarter, over the month. These kinds of transformations, these kind of calculations, perfectly fine in Snowflake. Snowflake's great at this. This is still in the realm of OLAP. Um, where Snowflake is not a fit tool is in the lag analysis department, in the interpolation department. When you're trying to fill in um, some arbitrarily arriving data that's jagged and you need to have a clean one minute grid of time series data for further data analysis, Snowflake's not your tool for that. There are some sub use cases where you can kind of force and make it fit. That's not going to work. Seasonality analysis, uh, Fourier transforms, kind of that frequency analysis. Um, Snowflake's not your tool. Not today. Uh, the great thing about Snowflake is it gets better um, every month. There's always new uh, releases. Kieran, I don't know if you've been in a scenario where uh, we've been in a room with a client. They've asked me, hey, does Snowflake support this? And I'm like, nah, they don't. Um, and then a little part of me is like, maybe I should check it out. And it's like, well, no, they released it last week. Yeah, they do support it now. Excuse me. Yeah, no, I, I've been in uh, one actually recently where they asked, uh, should I've heard a lot about Snowflake, and you guys seem to be the guys who know Snowflake. Yeah. Should we use it for our, for our clearly obvious time series, real time series database solution, where they're trying to monitor um, their wells drilling in um, in Ohio or something like that? And my answer always is no, but um, and I haven't checked recently if uh, Snowflake has figured that has added any new functionality, but uh, I would always recommend a, an actual RDM, RDBMS uh, database where that's a real-time uh, database system, sort of like an InfluxDB or something like that. Oh, RDBMS, uh, Relational Database Management System? Yeah, that's not the right word. Do I need to cut that? Yeah, that was the wrong word. Sorry, dude. No, no problem. All right, let's go back. Where were we? You just say time series database. Okay. What I recommend to a client is a time series database uh, it, where you sort of like influx DB. Okay, so this comes back, though, to understanding your use case, right? Mm -hmm. So just yes. because there's timestamps in the data doesn't mean you do or don't have a time series use case. Um, right. So understand what those are and then also use a fit for purpose approach. Snowflake is such a central, flexible, modular tool that I find it to be a good home for data at rest after it has mm -hmm. been analyzed, you know, in motion. So you might have your hot store for time series analysis for maybe the last six months, or the last year in one of those influx tools and one of those time series fit for purpose tools. But then your, yep. your longer term, your colder storage, which is still pretty warm but your colder aggregate-based calculations happen in Snowflake, and then you can go back and forth between the two. So they complement each other very well. Oh, absolutely. And even, even further still, you could actually take advantage of the external tables in Snowflake and even roll off certain uh, medium, what I call lukewarm data in Snowflake. Mm. If you had the hot data being in the real-time architecture, the lukewarm being in the Snowflake, and then you could have an automated system where data that's really cold in Snowflake, let's say you have a monitoring service on Snowflake, that gets rolled off even into Blob Store. So you mentioned external and, tables on Snowflake. Can you tell me what those are? 
Yeah, so they're like pointers. Is the best way I can describe them simple, as simply as possible is they're like pointers to blob storage, essentially. So essentially, what's happening is you identify a place in uh, a bucket or a blob, depending on what cloud you're in, mm -hmm. and you point that you point Snowflake to that area, and then you can create a table from an external table from uh, that data, and that data rests outside of uh, Snowflake itself. Yeah. Yeah, so there, I mean that's similar if you've worked in the Hive world, you know the Hadoop world where you're doing SQL over um, files, over resting files in some file system. Um, and, and it's important to mention that you know Snowflake, whether you go with AWS or GCP or Azure, you can still interact with data that's in one of those other systems. So those file storage um, solutions, S3 being what I would consider the kind of the, the I don't know the canonical example, but you can still work with Blob or ADLS that's in private preview now. Um, and then Google's equivalent for file storage. You can import those back and forth. So it is a nice way to, to be able to query data at rest. I, I mean, I personally, I have a distaste for that. I think just go ahead and ingest it in Snowflake because in Snowflake storage formats can give you so much performance increase that if you're doing any work of any importance, it's going to be worth it. Yeah, I guess I was just making that argument where you could, if you wanted to take advantage of super cheap storage, you could do that. However, you would have to like if you wanted to just use it directly in blob is what i'm saying right so would you say that like not so snowflake when it's charging you for storage um it's doing that kind of pass-through charge it's not charging you any more than what the underlying cloud provider charges so oh is it yeah okay. and it also provides compression compression that i would say is competitive maybe even a little better than what you could do on your own so i always like to push back on that that this idea that it's always cheaper to keep it outside of snowflake i find that it's Often not. And Snowflake always has the option to push it back out to your your provider. So as long as you're in the right. same region, same cloud, you don't even have egress charges to worry about. You just run it and dump it. Um, yeah. And, and that kind of brings me to this interesting part of Snowflake. So far, we've talked about it in the context of other cloud data warehouses. But I want to talk about, like, what are these next generation features that are only possible because Snowflake is cloud first? What are these things that are coming up maybe through the pipeline or maybe some features that exist already that have you excited um, that make it kind of unique working on Snowflake? You can't get this kind of stuff on other other systems. Yeah, sure. So one of the features that I used pretty much on a day-to-day -day basis is data sharing. Okay. And that, and to give you a brief rundown of what data sharing is, uh, data sharing is essentially a way to securely share data across Snowflake environments. So let's mm -hmm. say that you were company A in across the world in Australia, and you were trying to share data with company B across the world in Singapore, you could share data by creating what's known as a data share. And if you both have Snowflake environments, you can securely lock down, even down to the view layer of your data, and you can show just that layer of data to company A or company B, and you don't have to share your entire Snowflake environment with them. So they only have access to that provision data set that company A has allowed company B to see. And, that, and that's important to explain a little further. The data sharing is not duplicating your data. You're not sending a copy anywhere. Snowflake at the service layer is having your shared person directly hit the file data that you have stored at the Snowflake layer. So it's all internal. There's no copying, there's no transiting, there's no updating, right? So as soon as I make a change, that data, boom, it's updated and it's available for all of my partners. So there's an example I like to use. There's a, um, a housing data company um, in the Midwest that 
more familiar with. They're not a client, but they, for a long time, they would sell housing data to different vendors who use this data about what houses are on the market, what they're selling for, what they should be selling for. Um, and they would just send them zip files, right? And that can get expensive. And once you get your zip file for the week, you don't get updated until next week. And if someone else has a little bit of an edge on you, you know, a couple of days can make a big difference. So they transitioned uh, and dropped their costs, their costs quite dramatically by using Snowflake data shares. So they expose to their clients now just the shared data that they have on subscription. And it's always up to date. It's always live. And then from the provider standpoint, you're only maintaining a single copy of this data. And you don't have to orchestrate getting the data out to people, zipping it properly, paying bandwidth charges. So this data sharing feature um, and what Snowflake's building uh, to help support monetization and more global sharing, their data exchange. So once you have this ability to share data seamlessly across different instances and secure, excuse me, and securely, um, Snowflake is implementing this kind of marketplace, kind of like an app store, right? For all the data. So say, you know, I work, I work in data and maybe I have a metrics database. I know how to convert any unit to any other unit. I know how to go from feet to meters to something super obscure. I know all the different temperature measures, all these other things. And when I create a really clean and pristine database for that, most of the time I just use it internally. But you know, a lot of other companies, especially engineering companies, oil companies, they're doing the same thing. Why can't I, oh, yeah. why can't I be the one provider for that mapping logic? Whenever you're going from miles to feet, you always do this one conversion. That's the one way it's done. And no one else has to solve this problem again. This one thing that I know that companies really struggle with is time zone conversions too. That's another group. Around that. Yeah. So if, if we could provide mapping, really complex mapping that we maintain as a first class activity, that's our whole core focus. And then we can sell that access to other people for a minimal fee, much less than it would take for them to come close to implementing that on their own. Um, we have supply, they have demand and Snowflake's mapping that to each other in a way that wouldn't be possible if we didn't have secure data exchanges. So of all the features we're going to talk about that secure data exchange, I'm fond of saying it's kind of like being into microcontrollers in the seventies in Silicon Valley. Like it is the cut of what I believe to be one of the next great revolutions in tech is this, this data economy. Uh, we've talked about a lot, but no one's ever solved that problem of like all of our data siloed. Anyway, I could talk about this for days. Yeah, that could be a whole other episode, data economy. What, what what's, the, what's the what's the hip on that? Yeah. Anyway, so I mean, what else? So that's just one piece of it with Snowflake. There's some other really cool day-to-day features you can use right now. Oh yeah, let's talk about uh, one of those features that we use constantly, which is cloning. And when I refer to cloning, I'm actually referring to what they what the Snowflake documentation refers to as uh, zero copy cloning. Yeah. And which creates a copy of a database schema or table, essentially. And it creates a snapshot of the data that's present in the source object and is taken when the, cr- the clone is created. And it's made available to the cloned object. So the, uh, the cloned object is writable and it's independent of the clone source. And that is to say that changes made to either the source or the clone are not, are they're independent of each other. Okay, so maybe in English a little bit. Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. The, essentially they're separate. Yeah, these data clones. So if you work with Git at all, like you understand the concept of a master branch, right? So cloning is like taking your master branch, your production table, and forking it. You're just, you're just mm-hmm. branching it off. I know fork and branch are different, but you, you take that main yeah. line of production. You don't want to mess with it because other applications are using this data. But what if I have a new way of modifying the data that I want to test out? 
And another system, I'm going to have to copy all of that data, which at scale can be expensive. And I may have to compete with resources uh, on the production workflows. So now I have to create a whole new instance. And Snowflake computes separate, so I just spin up my own warehouse. Uh, I can copy, zero copy clone with no copy. It just takes a pointer in time at the data as it was and allows me to modify. I can mess with it. I can try new things, test it out. Um, this is fantastic for dev work. This is fantastic for cache hacking, uh, which is another topic in its own, for making sure you're getting the most hits to that service layer cache as possible. Um, and I like to think of it as branching your tables for development work. And that's something that another service couldn't do. So that's that's cloning. But that feature is kind of a, it's an offshoot of a more fundamental capability in Snowflake called time travel. You want to tell us a little so more yeah, what, on time travel? Yeah, let me... Um... Let me get a little more into time travel. So I've used so the my, the most um, what I would argue is I've used time travel before on delta tables, which was you were able to go back through and see old versions of the data, and it kind of works the same way in stuff like where you're able to go back and look at his, the older history of the data, and you can see okay maybe there was a there was a table in the past that I wanted to see that or an older version that oh uh, that's that's where the actual true data is at yeah so you can actually go back through your history and grab the table and then replace it essentially. Yeah. Which I find pretty useful. And again, that time travel kind of feature, that's not something that you have to really configure. You just define how far back in the past you want Snowflake to store the time travel changes um, going back to 90 days. And then it's just done for you. So a quick use case for like, why would you use time travel? Um, one, say I have a nightly batch and something looks a little off. I, I can't quite tell what, but like the, the roll-ups look bad. Let me go ahead and query my before versus my after and see what the difference is. In another system, if that's even possible, it would require a ton of infrastructure to set up. But here, I just select star from table, and then I have select star from table at, that little keyword. And I can put it in a timestamp. I can put it in a specific query ID where I want to do before this specific query was run, I want to look at the data then. And then I can compare the two tables as if they are separate tables. I can clone one. I could um, create a new table as the select from that. So I have so much flexibility and rollback becomes such a simple process. I just overwrite the table based on a previous time travel uh, point in time. Um, another, I mean, one really cool implementation of that is something called undrop. So Karen, I don't know about you. I have dropped production data that I could not recover um, earlier in my career, and it was terrible. And I will never miss that, dude. <laughs> I I don't I can't tell you how much I would have um, given to have uh, an undrop feature. Snowflake has that out of the box, um, and I have dropped tables and been like, oh no, undrop real quick, and it's fixed everything. So time travel, cloning, um, even data sharing to an extent, they're all based off of the fundamental way that Snowflake is designed cloud first and how it stores data. And other systems just could never, ever do this. But yeah, cool. Talking about things that other systems probably could do, but they don't. Um, tell me about these metadata tables that Snowflake provides. So yeah, Snowflake provides a series of metadata tables that you can query at a moment's notice that allow you to check things like who's been on, how much, who's been using what, uh, resources within the Snowflake account, what what accounts have been active within the, and you can actually aggregate those account those account metrics and and create nice little BI dashboards yeah. that even, I think you set the ones up for our 
yeah. for our company. And, and you can see. I get so much credit for that. Like these metadata tables, I'm telling they're literally tables. They're not a UI in some cloud provider that I go and I click and I like push the right buttons and I get the dashboard the way they want me to see it. This is a, this is a table or they're really views that I can query with SQL. So if I want to see if anyone's run a command as account admin other than Randy, that is the easiest thing in the world. Just select star from query history where query contains, I don't know, some admin function or where the role is the admin and where yeah. user is not. I mean, it's the thing anyone, literally anyone would come up with. But that little simple thing, just connecting a dashboard to that because Snowflake provides it for free, I've gotten a lot of credit for internally. Um, yeah, absolutely. People, they assume it's a lot harder to do. They assume I've done some kind of log parsing or some kind of scraping of a UI. No, I just connected uh, Sigma, our BI tool, to um, to Snowflake, and that was a done deal. So um, that's the kind of thing that once you start using it, once you start administering a cluster, you'll be thankful to have. Um, debugging slow queries or helping users find out why something failed. Um, it, it's really, really easy with that. Yeah, so tell me about another feature here. Um, the, the, uh, these CDC streams, I've never used them before, yeah, yeah. but I know that you have before. Okay. So I'd really like to get your on these. So streams, I have kind of a passion for streams. Um, Snowflake has this concept of a stream. It's an object. And when I create a stream, so we should say Snowflake doesn't always name things in the way that I, I don't know I would name things. I think we have a couple like the virtual warehouse is maybe a complicated name for a service that is a warehouse. Um, right. CDC streams. So say I have a table and it gets updated regularly, and it doesn't have a timestamp column that tells me when new data has arrived. So if I wanted to do some processing but only process the new data, I would have to do some rather complex SQL to find out what new means. I mean, even have to compare the current data in the source with my process data. And that can be really expensive. CDC Streams gets rid of that by having this object that only holds new data. And when I query that stream, which has the same structure as my table, I query it just like a table, but it has these bonus columns that tells me a little bit about the operation that was done, whether it was a modifier or a delete or an append, different things like that. I can query that, insert the results into a new table. And then when I query the stream again, it only has the new data. All that old data is kind of flushed out of the stream. Uh, and these are really powerful if you do any sort of CDC processing. They've saved me quite a lot on uh, compute time, especially in my cloud log analytics stuff, where just parsing through the logs, if you don't have the right timestamp column, for what you're trying to do, it can be really expensive to grab and it can be really, really error prone. So uh, I'm working on a, uh, a thing for Snowflake Summit right now to help explain streams because I think it's a hard concept. Um, it's kind of like explaining how to ride a bike. Like you might hear me, but until you get on the bike and start riding, you don't really get it. Um, so streams, if you're not familiar with those, they're worth checking out. Um, and then Absolutely. something that I'm really hopeful for, something that I wanted to bring up is the Snowflake UI. I think having used the other three UIs, Snowflakes is the best to write SQL in. I think that's probably a fair statement. I think the other tools aren't necessarily built to be a, a single source of, sing, uh, of SQL writing. They intend for you to write your SQL somewhere else, but maybe run it interactively now and again in the UI. Uh, but Snowflake's a better experience, but it's not perfect. Things like autocomplete, things that I would expect to be there, they're not there. Um, sharing your files is not there. Um, charts, which I wouldn't necessarily expect uh, but they'd be cool, like a simple bar chart of some results. They're not there, but they have a new UI. They've acquired a company, Numeracy. Uh, this was announced last year, and uh, they've been talking about how it's going to 
totally revolutionized the way you work with Snowflake in the UI. And I've been dreaming of having that. Even just some simple autocomplete would make my life so happy. And that's supposedly coming soon. Um, I, I thought maybe they'd announce it at Summit. I don't know anything. I just thought they might. Uh, but with uh, Corona, they've delayed Summit um, to a I don't know if they've disclosed the time or if we're even sure on when that will be, but uh, I don't think we are. Man, I hope they still release the UI. Being in quarantine, yeah, be that would that would help my quarantine a lot to have a nice, sweet Snowflake UI. Dude, I would love to be able to autocomplete. You know how frustrating it is to be writing Python code that can autocomplete <laughs> and then <laughs> switch over to uh, switch over to Snowflake and hit Tab when you're like halfway through your last. Um, your table and it just doesn't autocomplete. No, I, I found a lot of luck moving to dBeaver. And I mean, it's a SQL client. There are other tools as well, but dBeaver has single sign-on support. Um, if I'm writing any amount of like what I would consider production, like code that I intend to save, then I'll write that in dBeaver and then save that to like with VS code or something. Okay. And uh, dBeaver, I've used it before, but for our audience, it's not an only Snowflake tool, right? Oh. You can connect to multiple. Uh, data warehouse, cloud data warehouses, data warehouses on prem, and even databases, right? Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic tool. I think it's open source. Um, I install it with Brew, so it's definitely user friendly. Uh, and, and I've used it before when I'm doing comparisons, like bake offs and stuff against different warehouses or different tools. Uh, it's nice to have in one UI my Redshift, my BigQuery, my Synapse, and my Snowflake all in one spot. Very nice. I mean, I used it on my Windows machine and it. There was no problems trying to integrate between the handoff for the DBV or when I was setting up a resource for you at that one time. So Perfect. it works really well across those across those environments. Well, I think that's all we have for today. Uh, we would like to thank you, the audience, for listening to each and every episode of Data Rebels on Tap. And uh, please stay tuned for further posts and follow us on social media. And really I'm importantly, I want to bring this up um, at hashmapinc.com slash data rebels on tap, no spaces. Um, we have uh, a feedback form. So if there are topics that you want to hear more about or things you want us to cover that we haven't really discussed, especially in Snowflake, there's so much to discuss. If there's some things you're really interested to, to hear our perspective on, please go in there and fill it out. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll definitely do an episode if people are asking for it. Absolutely. That would be awesome. Until then, this has been Data Rebels on Tap with Kieran Healy and Randy Pitcher. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Data Rebels on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the Data Rebels on Tap page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.